Welcome to the Special Generalist Podcast. Today's guest is a bachelor from the University of Mary. He's a coach, broadcaster, teacher, and internationally ranked powerlifter. He provides lifting programming to hundreds of varsity athletes and developing athletes, coaching to others, and insights to many. Welcome, Robert Fuller. Thanks, Peyton. I appreciate it, man. I've been excited for this, looking forward to it for a long time, and uh, just honored that you would have me on. Yeah, this all started from passings of conversations when we were, me and my little brother Brant were lifting at the high school, and just the expanse of conversations we'd get into were parallel to exactly the conversations I like to get to on here. I think you have some great application and credibility towards different philosophies, different programming, different understanding from even an education standpoint, but then also from the the programming standpoint and understanding kids and just your relationship with all the kids at Bismarck High School. It, It really shows in the program's ability since you've been there. And I think you came on board just when I was a senior or a junior in high school. So I didn't really get to to get that full effect quite until I saw it with Brandt in his class. But I just absolute respect to the way you got that class. You know, you were a part of how great that class was and I, I just reflecting back on that, there's just I know so much insights and, and thoughts from your, your career along with your powerlifting career. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, my, my first year coaching football with Bismarck High was your senior year. We didn't really get that chance to, I didn't get much time with you, just other than Friday nights on the sidelines interacting yep. with you. And, but Brant's class, so his freshman year was the first year that I was brought into the weight room at BHS. So they were my first group to go through, you know, all four years with. And what a special group. Absolutely. It... it I would any coach out there is, is going to say that it really takes it doesn't matter what I know it it's just really takes the buy-in of the athletes and that class in particular being so close with each other that was just such a great group and, and just their buy-in and kind of my relationship and, and it's a unique situation in that I have all of I have all of our students as eighth graders so then to yep. be able to coach them at the high school and spend that time with them throughout the progression of their career is just really it's such a blessing to be able to be with those guys. But they were really a big part of you know my evolution, working with high school students, previously just coaching, basically coaching myself for, for so long. That was really my first time to, to have four years with a group of students and, and just even what I had them doing, our programming and everything they were such a big part of the evolution of what our kids are doing now. So if I tease that apart, you had obviously your education. One of the cool things I probably assume is seeing the maturation of all these young adults essentially going into the real world, et cetera. But it's also probably pretty cool to see educating young adults and then also the weightlifting and the powerlifting and then allowing that coaching overlap to uh, take place again when you said that you had that first class. Is there a different approach to education, to programming, to just from an accountability standpoint, to getting buy-in, holding people's attention to want to do the thing that they that they should set out to do? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think the students that have had me as a teacher in the classroom and then have had me as a coach on the football field or as a coach in the weight room, I think they would all say that I really believe in keeping things simple and um, 
and basically holding everybody accountable. Really, what you're going to get out of it is what you put into it. In the classroom, I set the bar high in terms of behavior and work ethic and just really hammer home that, hey, you have a lot of opportunities ahead. You have a lot of opportunities right now. What you put in is what you're going to get out, plain and simple. And, and the same thing goes into the weight room. I, I love teaching. I love the opportunity to impact young people. But really, my passion is when I get, when I get into that weight room, it's been such a huge part of my life for so long. I think I've been training, it might be 38 years now that, that I've been training. And training really helped. Just the weight room saved my life where I was headed to when I was younger. When I come into that weight room setting, it's I, I want it to be a place that, that young people want to be. I right. want them to say, hey, let's go to the weight room. Let's get a workout in. Let's go visit with Fuller or let's go see the other guys. And we still even have that thing going on right now, like where our former players, yourself included, come yep. back and the vibe in the weight room. It's such a it's such a good vibe or it's just a just a close knit vibe where again, I, I think just bouncing around with all these ideas, philosophically, it's just really when I train young people, I my emphasis is on teaching them how to lift properly, correctly. Yep. And I remember early with Brant's group, I would tell them, there is nothing that you're going to put on a bar that's going to impress me in the grand scheme of things. But how you lift it, and how you warm up, how you prepare, how you spot people, that's going to impress the heck out of me. So it's just really trying to get them to buy into the process. We always talk about the process. And those are the most important things to me is just getting. And that's one of the reasons that we I take pride in this is that we've had kids move some big weight. We've had kids really change physically over the course of their four years. But during the time, during that time in there, we've never gotten anybody hurt. And that's something that I really pride myself on because if a kid gets hurt in the weight room, they just lose so much time. And in high school with kids playing multiple sports, they just don't have that extra time to be injured or to be out of the weight room for that reason. Just creating that environment where, again, we take things very seriously, and I can't think of any group that, that did it better than Brant's group, where those guys were goofballs, they were a blast, they have so much fun, but when it's time to clock in and get to work, they are getting to work and they're getting after it. I feel like that that's, encompasses what I want the weight room to be at BHS. That's, that's a really cool idea because it's not only just a weight room. If you look at it, just that it's, you know, what it is, it's got layers to it in which it creates an environment that it feels like a home. So you can walk into any house, it's not your home. But when you create that kind of sense of centerpiece and it's a healthy centerpiece of your day and it, it can be addictive, I'm scrambling if I don't have my centered workout in the day or, or kind of that place where I get to go reserve some, but that was all created from my previous habits and understanding of how important that was. And I think it's really cool that in your past, you have found that to be your oasis of, hey, this is my, this, if I don't have this as to the center of my life or my day, then it, then, you know, it just provides structure. It provides a spirit. It provides all of those things and you're recreating that and then building. I think that is what great programs do like across the board, not just weightlifting, but like actual sports programs that have this tradition or this kind of like spirited history. Yeah. You walk in that room and you feel the years of like sweat and tears, all of it in yeah. that room. It's, it's not just the room. Like you literally walk into it and you feel 
feel the density of whatever spirit that's there because it's just yeah. it's just embedded in the, the place itself you know absolutely and i like i said training finding the weight room saved my life i was headed definitely in the wrong direction and i didn't start off as an athlete I was. I, I didn't fit into any groups. I was just the oddball outsider looking in, and I, I just. I had looked at. I would look at the football players. I would look at the wrestlers. Or I'd look at seniors or upperclassmen or just. I admired strength. I admired the look of a strong person, man or woman. When you see somebody with traps or you see somebody with developed yeah. forearms. Um, or muscular legs. It was just something that I really admired. And way back in the day, my dad bought me a weight set when it was the, the plastic weights with the cement in, in inside. And I feel like he did this on purpose. At, at that point, it was just, it was me and him and he was working. He's, he was in the Air Force. And so there'd be a lot of times where I was home alone and he would say, do not work out when I'm not here. And it was like, that's part of me. Was, is he saying is he doing some reverse psychology on me where he wanted me working out when yeah, he wasn't yeah. there? And so I just, from the first time that I, naturally, I think everybody does the bench press first. And yep. from the first yep. time that I started doing it, it just, it just lit a fire in me that has obviously, I think that was 1984. Yep. And that has stayed with me ever since. And I, I desperately want our young people to experience something similar so that no matter what's going on in their life or if they're done with sports or whatever, there's so many things that we can turn to deal with stress and to deal um, with life. And there's a lot of those things aren't positive, but that training, and I love now, especially with social media, just how prominent training is for everybody. Like everybody's training now. It's almost right. you don't work out when you talk to somebody, you're, right. and, and whatever that is, whether it's rollerblading, biking, so many people are involved in so many different activities that I just want them to learn the right way to train. And 15 years down the line, they're teaching their son or daughter how to squat. Some of those things that, that they learned in our weight room, they're going to carry with them the rest of their life. And, and that's really, that's what drives me. Just, I don't know, it, it's... I guess it, it's a selfish pursuit from that standpoint in that I know it's a blessing for my life and I want to pass that on to them. That's really what drives me as far as being involved with them and spending that, that time with them. I think there's that, the, I think I can't, I don't know if it's, I think it's Jordan Peterson. He says, learn, be a monster, but learn how to discipline it. You know, it's, it's, if you have a fire in you, you need some sort of medium to basically <laughs> put that in, into the as a vehicle into the world right and yeah. these it, it's an ancient old passing of the torch of hey this is what i did i'm going to teach you how to do this i'm going to teach you how to do this and it's happened for years and years and years and that medium provides a vehicle again for individuals into the next generation to to be tooled and a form of i always think that some people who are like workaholics or you always hear of like the cameron haynes or like the people that are running and doing all these crazy things yeah. they're just uh, a properly placed addict in a different vehicle or a medium essentially saying they're probably a monster and of themselves but they're just they're tooled and disciplined in, into the right direction and i think the most fiery people are like that. You, I don't know if 
when you said that, yeah. it just it reminded me of hey, you you felt like you were going down a different direction. You you probably had that fire and it was just ignited, and that medium provided you an opportunity to deliver that fire and then now continuously teach that moving forward. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and when you talked about Cam Haynes and just that being addicted to what he does, that that really resonated with me. Just in competing in powerlifting, just that yep. process. It, it, I feel like I'm addicted to that process of thinking about goals or, or thinking about what the year looks like or the lineup of competition, and then basically saying, "Hey, this is the competition. It's this time frame away." What do I want to accomplish at that meet? And then just reverse engineering everything backwards. And I, I know I may be jumping ahead a little bit in our conversation, but oh no, um, it, it's just being addicted to that process. For me, I need to be, I'm an all-in person. I, I can be in my classroom during my prep period. And, and I'm thinking about training. I'm not thinking about grading assignments and things like that. My <laughs> mind is just, my mind is on training or at, at some lulls in the day. I'm thinking about the workout at school with the kids. I'm thinking, okay, hey, today's a big squat day. We, we got to make sure that they, they warm up well, that they hit those build-up sets, that they're getting those sets in with the bar and then the 25s and then the 45s and, and just thinking about that whole process of, of, of what the day looks like. So it's like, I can't stop thinking about it. It, it just really- it's, it's, an, it is a, it's a properly assessed addiction. And that to me is, yeah. I oftentimes just, I get very obsessed over ideas or we'll have these conversations and, or I will in these podcasts and there'll be like five or six aha moments I have through the discovery of the conversation. And those yeah. just pester me. I just. I forget to do the laundry, I forget to do all these other things because I just have an obsession over this idea that's just an abstract idea, but it just, it's it's so novel or whatever it may be. But I think everyone needs, even though it may detract from other things or whatever, but you just, there's something that ignites you and finding the the proper disciplinary channel or or vehicle to reach that to a level of competence that you can then just continuously build off of that which i assume over the course of your career you said 38 years yeah you've probably become pretty proficient and then retooling what's specifically made you better i think I, I would be interested in hearing your progression uh, through your career i know we've touched yeah. on it inside conversations but i'd love to hear kind of just benchmark milestones from a high level what you've learned what you haven't etc i think that'd be a cool thing to go through and then maybe we could touch maybe on what we were just talking about the reverse engineering versus the yeah so when i started out i actually started off my world at that time was was muscle and fitness magazines and muscular development some of those old school bodybuilding magazines i still remember the first time that i saw the movie pumping iron and with Arnold Schwarzenegger, just again, just older movie back in the day that followed his process to the Mr. Olympia. And they was Lou Ferrigno and a lot of other guys in there, Franco Colombo. But just watching that was, I'm getting goosebumps right now thinking about the first time that I saw that movie and, and just like, I, I just said, that is what I want to do. I, I want to become a bodybuilder. So that was my start in the game. It wasn't powerlifting. I had done, I think a- after, I think there's a buildup where I, I did like a bench press competition. And then I actually did a bodybuilding competition when I was living in Arizona. I think at this time I was maybe, I don't know if it was 15 or 16, 
but I thought that was going to be my journey. I wanted to be that bodybuilder. I was the kid that was working out in weight training class and then coming home and doing another 15 sets of chest after already working out in weight training. I'm basically looking through the magazines, doing all the bodybuilders, double split, not aware of the other things that they were doing at that time, but just being just being young and dumb and, and super passionate about what was going on. I'm going through and, I, and I'm learning things. And at that time, just working out in, in some of the hardcore gyms and gyms back then, you walk in and there's just monsters everywhere. Just huge guys, huge girls. And it was, it was an underground scene almost back then. Yeah, um, like the gritty. The yeah, gritty, it was like... Yeah. yeah, like nobody was wiping anything off benches. Floors were not. It wasn't like these manicured, manicured Instagram type looking facilities. It was just old school. Where again, it was it was tough, man. It was rough, but I loved it. When I see pictures of those old school gyms right now, I just it just a sense of joy. Nostalgia. Yeah. 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 But then I'd moved to Alaska and then that's basically changed my life in, a, in another way in that I was finally eligible in, in that move to, to play sports and went out for football. And, and that's how at that time, that's where my life started in another direction where I started hanging out with people that were doing great things. And I started to become a little bit of what I had looked up to. Now I'm, I'm involved in sports. I was exposed to people that were doing, that were very popular, that were attending all the parties, but also had 4.0 GPAs and were very inclusive to the other groups of people. So it was a very impactful time in my life. This is up in Alaska, North Pole High School. Got to make a mention of North Pole, but that's, I feel like that's really where my life changed. And the first time I started thinking bigger picture as far as what life can look like in the future that maybe I could go to college and play football maybe I could go to college and get a degree and do some of those things so that's where the the sports bug started for me it's kind of it's kind of cool that you said that at one point in time you found your one that your thing yeah and then as you got to a point in which you started to see a divergence in opportunity yeah. You started to be able to think bigger picture, right? So oftentimes, yeah. you put your head down. Your head's down, you're just working. And as soon as you start to lift up, oh, you start to see the paths in front of you. And you're like, oh, I have options to make choices. And I, there's things that are great. And there's things that I notice that are bad. Yep. There's a divergence in your path. And it's really cool to see that you came to that point. Because that's mm -hmm. my main audience. That's who I want to talk to. They're these individuals that have these options and they're trying to weigh the diversity of things that are coming towards them. And I think yeah. it's I just wanted to really hit home on that. I thought it was really cool. Yeah. It was, we all have those moments in our life that, that changed the course of our life for a period of time after that. And, and making that move from Arizona where, um, just speaking from a training standpoint, that's where I, I got my start. I got into bodybuilding. I was exposed to Olympic lifting. It was some of the first times I had seen that. And then, which then moving up to Alaska, that's where sports entered my life, where I, I played football, I, I wrestled my sophomore year. One of my biggest regrets in my life is that I didn't continue on with wrestling. And I can go into a long story about that, but just <laughs> not, and I took my lumps that first year. And, and then after that, I just, I devo devoted myself to just training. I said, I'm going to train and I'm going to get as big as I can, get as good as I can in football. But in order to get to the weight room, I had to go through the wrestling room. So naturally I'd mess around, you know, and, and wrestle yep. around with some of my buddies before practice started and all the guys that would trash me 
the year before. Now I'm hip tossing these guys and, and just throwing them around. And so when I think back, and even now when I talk to kids and they think about quitting the sport after their first or second year, I'm like, man, don't do that. Don't, you got to stick with it. You know, that I encourage everybody to stick with their sport or, or try different sports, but I'm trying to stay on our-, our Swing, our, swing our, back. Yeah. You were talking about kind of the progression after that, yeah. after wrestling, moving up to Alaska and what your yep. kind of progression was. Yeah, just going going through that 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 process. But I think to circle back to training, which is where we were originally going in my powerlifting, I had done my so I had done my first meet, and it's funny how this worked out. I didn't compete in my first powerlifting meet until I was 38 years old. Wow. Yeah, to jump ahead in time here, but I was managing the Snap Fitnesses in town, and I was a personal trainer. And the busier I got, it was like the worst shape that I got in. Because I wasn't training with my clients, which if I had to do it all over again, there would probably be a client or two that I would actually train with, so I would have time. It was like you start at 5.30 in the morning, you don't get done until 8.30 or 9 at night. And if you've got an hour window in between or hour or two window in between, man, I'm going to go home and take a nap. I'm not. So it was the, and, and I'm used to having a carrot to chase. I need something, some pursuit. And it's like, I got to get into something. What do I do? Do I go back into bodybuilding again? And I'm thinking, boy, I don't know if I want to do that. It's just it, the, the um, amount of time that it takes. It's just so, you have to be all in to pursue bodybuilding. Well, it, it seems very disciplined, like detail oriented. Not that powerlifting isn't. It just seems like from yeah. a diet standpoint to. Yeah. It's know, another level. Right. It's an absolute another level, but. I happen to be, never forget this day, I'm going through Dan's supermarket and I'm walking past the magazines and, and, and I look over and I see a Powerlifting USA magazine and I start thumbing through it. I'm like, man, I got to get this. And went home, read through it, just looked at the upcoming meets, looked at records and all of this stuff. And, and, and I felt that feeling again of this is it. This is where, this is what I meant to pursue. Six weeks later, I'm on the platform for my first competition. And it was such a magical experience in that the guy that I was competing against, John Krogman, he had just, he was way younger than me, but we were in the same division. And he had just competed um, for Team USA at the Junior World Championships. This dude is lifting like 250 pounds more than me in each lift. He is just so you know and i wasn't as strong as i just wasn't at that point where i was getting my strength back yet but you're just getting was, your feet wet right yeah exactly I, I was going there for the experience and he was so encouraging for to me again i'm squatting 300 pounds less than he is he's cheering me on his crew which the great brad gillingham is an incredible power lifter somebody that i had I, i'm reading about him in this magazine and then just talking to him and just how encouraging he was it's like everybody that i've met here at this powerlifting meet is so cool everybody's so nice and encouraging and that's like where the hook was set man i was all in and that's awesome yeah it just the, the the experience the people that i met everybody was so friendly and so helpful and it was a little bit different vibe in, in bodybuilding in that bodybuilding is just is by nature it, it's not to say they don't have the friendships and the relationships, but it's and it being so subjective in nature. But I was going to say it seems more of it's a, a relative competition versus I, I think I think powerlifting is granted you are competing against others, but it's yeah. also your it, a lot of it's the measurement of your personal best 
which yeah. is more of an absolute competition, but you're competing more with yourself than you are relative to others sometimes. So yeah, that absolutely. relative to others makes it a little bit more, I don't know if it's superficial, but it's more one dimensional and it's not, at the end of the day, you guys are lifting. You guys want you guys to perform your best and it's awesome because everyone knows what it is, what it's like to make their personal best. Yeah. And so it's like, how can you not be encouraging to, to others around yeah. that, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I knew right then and there, I just wanted to, I knew I was going to continue doing this. And at that time, there was a, a great crew of, of guys up in Minot, and they were having meets twice a year. And a couple of us from Bismarck went up to Minot. And, and that's when you started to say, hey, you started to meet people like, man, there's people in Minot that love powerlifting. There's people in Fargo and in Grand Forks that love powerlifting. And then, then a whole new kind of world opens up as far as relationships. Like your circle just gets that much bigger and bigger with all the people that you meet. So it was just this kind of year by year progression of training and competing. And at that time I was also coaching indoor football. There'd be a block of about six months where there was no competitions. Training was a little rough in season, but just that progression of competing. You go from a local meet a couple times to all of a sudden now, okay, let's go do a state championship. And then 2015 was the first time that I had got to compete at the national championships. So for me, that was a whole different ball game. And I go, so at that time, I'm now 45 years old, 2015. So I'm going to nationals is the first time at 45. And I'll never forget that experience to walk into this hotel in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and to hear like the competition was on the second floor and somebody had just put a deadlift down or dropped a deadlift. And you just hear this rumbling and walking into the venue and it's shoulder to shoulder just incredible and there were i think there was five platforms going on at the time yeah and just this it was so amazing and i one of the first people i meet is kim walford so she's a multi-time world champion and she is just so down to earth and welcoming and it's everybody that i met for the first time like all these people that i've been watching on social media or seeing yep. in powerlifting magazine like i'm meeting these people and they are super cool like nobody has egos and then when it comes to my time to compete i'm on this middle platform and i'm looking around you know at all these team usa jackets and like i'm in the same flight so even though i was in the masters division i also competed in the open division at that yep. time so i'm in the same flight with ray williams and if people are in the strength game a little bit, they may know Ray Williams. He squatted a thousand pounds and he's won multiple world championships for a lot of years. He's been on ESPN and all of those things. He's been the standard. So like, holy smokes, man, I'm in the same flight with Ray Williams. This is insane. And then again, that circle just gets bigger and bigger with the, with the people that I meet. And as I'm progressing, I'm still trying to learn as much as I can. I think this is something that we've talked about in my journey, whether it's teaching or coaching. My philosophy has always been like absorb, modify, and apply. That's been a really big thing for me. So I like I'm watching what people are doing and I'm just, I'm taking mental notes or maybe I'm writing things down or I visit with them about training. So I'm trying to absorb as much as I can. And this is from Olympic lifting, powerlifting, strongman, strength and conditioning professionals going through that whole thing. And then you go through this process of trying to modify what you're seeing and what you're learning. And we all do it. You're doing it. You're watching what other people are doing. And then you try to take things that resonate with you. You modify those things 
in whether it's in my own training and my training has changed as I've gotten older, but then how can I use this with our young athletes at Bismarck High? And then how can I apply it? The first programs to circle, I don't want to say circle back because people have that association, but just keep politics out of this. So the first training programs that I did with the crew at BHS five years ago the I guess the fundamental base is still the same, but just from absorbing so much of what other people are doing, trying to modify it, like what our kids are doing now is just on a completely different level of what I started with. Right. And, and it's still age appropriate and, and applicable, but I've been able to basically run this experiment for the last five years or whatever it's been and trying to perfect this programming. And when you think about the dynamics in college strength coaches, they're working with teams and their jobs are very difficult because there's still a lot of dynamics, a lot of challenges with what is happening there. But you think about what's going on in a high school weight room when, you know, it's different facilities, the group sizes are different. You're working with, with students that are in different sports. Some are in season, some are out of season. You got frequency, attendance, things like that. There's just so many factors that come into this. And, and to me, it's that's what's exciting as a coach. It's those challenges that, okay, so if this kid's going to come in and he's working out with these three football players, but he's in season right now, how do I modify what he does today on the fly so it doesn't hurt what he's doing? I don't put him or her in in a bad position, and they're going to come. They're going to get some benefit out of what's going on. So, maybe the so group you're can... you're trying to you're trying to make like a static program in which it's universally applied to to get the best bang and most efficiency for your buck. Obviously, within yeah. everyone, but then you need to apply to the or modify to the idiosyncratic individual in their circumstances. Yes. Whereas in college, it's much more. It's probably much more layered within the fact that, hey, we have a team, they need to work on this this grouping of things, et cetera, and just talk from a high level. Yeah. And it's much more, I mean, it's more challenging probably technically, but you, what you're portraying is it's hard to practically at least get even people to the gym. So you're, you're just like, hey, I'm happy you're here, but exactly. I don't want to hurt you. So let's dial it back, right? Yeah, absolutely. And those scenarios or situations are, I, I love that. Just to, ha- to have to think on the fly, have to modify things. If a student comes in and, and says, hey, my, my elbow is hurting. Or another example, if if a Brant comes in and he just had surgery on his tricep, yep. okay, what do we do now? What can we do to get the safety squat bar out and, and do some different things? Those are the things I love. I just love those challenges. I love being able to make those modifications. and. I'm really fortunate in that most of the young people that I work with, they, I don't have to, it's easy for me to get buy-in from them because they've followed my career since they were eighth graders. They know that I'm not just sitting on, sitting in the big chair saying, do this, like. You're practicing what you're preaching. hundred percent. And I'm doing most everything that I asked them to do. I'm doing myself. They see me do five by eights or five by tens. And it's hard to it's hard to bitch about a five by eight. Your old your old coach is doing, you know, yeah. doing them doing them right after you get done doing them. So that's uh, I think that's one of the most 
respectable leadership <coughs> traits. Leadership traits is that yeah. you practice what you preach. Yeah, um, I think that's is set. You know, I don't know. I think in every aspect. I think if you're not if you're asking things of others that you're not practicing yourself, then you don't actually believe it. Yeah, like fundamentally. But we can steer back in. Yeah, no, for both of us, how much easier is it to follow a leader that's in the trenches with us? From time to time, I try to, there's going to be some times where I'm going to start warming up with them, or I may actually train with them when I'm having a bigger session, because I want them to see me train. I want them to see me put five plates on each side and hit and hit some bigger squats, just so they can see that, hey, everything, like, when I talk about unracking a big weight and taking taking our steps back settling in taking that big breath and bracing everything that i hammer home with them they're gonna see me doing that exact same thing they don't ever see me like i'm at an age where i can't but they don't ever see me coming into a weight room and just jumping into the rack and throwing weight on the bar they understand they see me it's a process they know the the old ball coach has got to has got to warm up and then warm up again and then warm up with the bar so there's this process and so I just feel like it's easier for them to buy in just because they see me doing those things. And I'm, you know, just fortunate to still be in that position where I could lead by example. And just, I, I feel like it just really, it really impacts the buy-in. I, I 100% agree. I think that's universal across sports, business, et cetera. I think leaders that are well-respected are ones that have proven to have accomplished and to practice the things that they hold people accountable to. So instead of being this like despotic, tyrannical, hey, you have to do this arbitrary thing that I am so smart that I've done and never practiced myself or have any proven process. There's this ability now, you have the wisdom of years from a big picture standpoint to the actual application of practice. You're doing and experimenting the things that you're talking about every day. And this is one of the things that my my old coach, Jeff Schumacher, that I respected through and throughout and how old he is to be wrestling on the mat yeah. And continuously wrestling on the mat from thir- you know, from three-year-olds all the way up to the high school level and continuously just loving the sport that he's in. It's quite admirable, and it's a lot easier for his wrestlers to, to respect everything that he says because he's constantly tampering it with himself. It's, yeah. it's quite... I think, I think just the, the influence of leadership that you don't get people to do things by saying do them. You do them yourself and watch people follow you. And I, there's a quote, it's, you can't push a string, you can only pull it. So yeah, if you're doing it yourself, the string will follow you. You can't push the string itself. And I've always thought yeah. that was a really cool saying itself. Yeah, and I think that's important, especially in this day and age, just with where our young people are at, there's so much value in showing that you, that this is what you're about. Schumacher, for example, again, one of the greatest coaches in North Dakota history, running, leading the probably the greatest program in North Dakota history, one of the best programs in the nation, a year in and year out. He's probably where he's at in, in life and in health and all of those things and in spirit because he's still wrestling and doing those things with those young people. And like I have that thing where I'm teaching kids and they get to follow my career. He's working with those third graders and they see him throughout his throughout their journey as a coach that is rolling up the sleeves, that, that is, de- you know, doing the demos and doing things and showing them by doing them as opposed to maybe just pulling up a video or, or talking about it. Yeah, I think 
there's a sense of humility that goes with just doing the practical thing that I think oftentimes you get even into a position maybe at a, an organization or a business in which probably what it is and you maybe sometimes you physically can't do it I get that but there's at least some credibility attributed to what you're preaching and I think sometimes people want to theoretically project what they think is right while simultaneously not implementing any of the same philosophies into their life. And to me, I always had a very difficult time uh, buying into those coaches specifically because of that. And I'm, I'm reiterating the kind of same point, but it's definitely something that I've learned. I know that with work, you come up with an idea and you have the power to put it into place. But it doesn't mean that it's applied because it doesn't mean that people are buying into doing it. What makes you think that your ignorant theory is so right without actually practicing piloting process through the whole process of making sure that's right? And I think some, I think that's the, and this is probably even broader than that, is some of the relationship between kind of what works in practice, like the practical application of things versus the theoretical application. Oftentimes the people that are very practical don't care about the theory because it's not proven. And the theoretical people go, you're just, you're doing old practices that are, are, yeah, they worked 20 years ago, but they're not up to snuff now. And I think there has to be a conversation between the middle. You have like what you just said, you observe, you take in different sources, you read different white papers, or you read different philosophies, you modify it, you tweak it, you say, oh, I implemented that. And I saw great gains. I, I think that's universal across any anything that you're trying to accomplish. Like I, yeah. if you're reading a book and then you're not actually implementing anything you're reading in the book, what's the point of reading the book? Just to talk about the ideas, but you're just a talker then. You're not walking the talk. And right. It, I, I think it just from teaching, coaching, to managing, to being a business owner, to being a department head or a leader of a team from a business standpoint, if you don't have buy-in, it doesn't really matter what, it doesn't matter what you bring to the table. It doesn't matter your level of experience. If you cannot create buy-in, if you cannot create that that team element where everybody's rowing in the same direction and that everybody has a vested interest, and that's tough because in the real world, everybody's looking out for number one. You've got to be able to build that team and just from my years of coaching indoor football, we didn't always try to get the, the best available. It was like, I need to recruit the type of players that are gonna buy in to what the group is about, what the mission is, what the goal is, what the program philosophy is. And when, in, in indoor football, you're dealing with guys that have played college football or guys that have been in NFL camps that wanna get back there. Um, so they have a very selfish interest, and rightfully, they're, con- they're taking this opportunity for their end goal, but we will not be successful as a team if everybody's doing their own thing or playing, playing for themselves. So that same thing applies in the, business, in the business world, that again, if you can't create, if you can't build a team, if you can't manage that team, if you can't create that buy-in, you're, just, you're not going to be successful. You're going to get eaten alive. It's also interesting, too, because... So my mind goes in a bunch of different directions. I would compare the indoor football team to a small business that's trying to grow. You don't go to a small business without realizing that, hey, I need to put sweat equity into this. I need to do additional things. I'm probably more of a generalist. I'm not in my specialist scope. I'm not a a cog in the wheel. 
I actually have to be here, not as an individual, but as a group to grow the pie, not take the piece of the pie that's already there. And oftentimes I think that some people use it as a landing pad to jump up to maybe like a corporation that's got a billion dollar corporation. And then again, then they're a specialist and they're taking a good chunk of the pie that's already there or, or the pie is already developed and they're taking a chunk of it already. But little do they know also though, is that with that comes a distribution of, hey, yeah, there's people that are in the NFL that are making a lot of money, but there's a lot of people that have only going there for a year or two and making not a lot of money, and they have zero transferable. They didn't build a team. They didn't, they didn't show success. They, they were out for themselves. The things that you're universally saying are applicable to no matter what thing that you go into in the future. If you say, yeah, I was a person that went on, I have some experience with teams. I was on a team. We were able to win by X, Y, and Z. Those are all things that you can say, but if you're narrowly going, trying or trying to make it to the NFL for a year or two, yeah, you have a short-sighted vision of, of what it means to be successful, I should say. Yeah, absolutely. And I think about that, just one of the things you were just saying there, if if you're only thinking about playing that one or two years in the NFL, you're selling yourself short if you don't understand or if you're not also thinking about using that opportunity to develop relationships, to network. And if I think of that Bustin' with the Boys podcast where yep. those guys, NFL players, have, while they're playing, one's retired, one's still playing, to build a platform to build another business or build opportunities while you're still pursuing that one thing. And again, I, I get it because I'm so process focused, tunnel vision. Like I'm not thinking so much about what are what side hustles can I have while I'm preparing for a national championship here. But you just with those greater opportunities, you still need to be open to, to other opportunities and other pursuits. And you, you have that end goal in mind, but what are some other possible things that can come from that? I think that's literally the emphasis of this whole podcast is you you have this uh, mode of focus, but then you have this diffuse state in which you, to be creative, you have to be in a diffuse state, like to be able to think of things that are outside of what you're focusing on. And what I try to do, and I think that a lot of people can do this, they always say you can't multitask, but I I don't want to call it multitasking. I think you need to think of things that can cross off 15 different things that you want to do. So like this podcast, for example, I like to read. I like conversing with people. I like, I like long form conversations. I like talking about ideas. I, I like the creative aspect of, of delivering this podcast to the internet. So it, it crosses off like six things for me. Mm-hmm. And it's unique and new and fresh so it has it opens me up to opportunities that are outside of what i'm doing in my real world and there's all sorts of things that you can leverage in your network your work your whatever you're doing or you can converge two different areas like we were talking about earlier but i really buy by that philosophy because one thing is if you put all your eggs in that one basket you'll end up you'll end up at some point in time not being able to do that thing regardless and you can still use remnants of that what you love in a new vehicle if necessary and i think for example obviously coaching 
is a very common one for sports, right? Where yeah. you love said sport, you can't, you can no longer play said sport, but now you're trying to relay that. But you see it with podcasts. There's all these niches. I, mean, I see it in wrestling. There's these podcasts coming around niches of things, and people are talking about it. And there's just like this cross information that's continuously happening through social media. So I just I think. We're just touching on the expansion of all these little niches and specialty scopes and kind of this cross-pollination of things. If you like, you see it all the time. The the power lifter that was also a mechanic and he developed a a new tool or or a new machine, etc. And I just I love those moments of cross-pollination between passions. I just think that. Yeah. It's a cool and unique way to just stumble upon eureka moments, I should say. But yeah. yeah, no, I completely get it. I think it's so hard when you're obsessed and focused on one thing. You, you preach that. Like, oftentimes you tell people to focus up. And I think we live in a world now where there's so much chaotic context going on that it's almost hard to concentrate enough energy on one thing. Yeah. And so I work trying to train myself into that direction versus taking in a diverse source of content and trying to not diverge into a hundred different paths. I'm trying to like maintain myself. And I think there's people that relate to that, but then I think there's also individuals that are very focused and obsessed that need to shell up a little bit or open up, read some variety of things. Or if you think something's not interesting, why do you think someone else is interested in it? What makes that person interested in it? And just try to shell and be like, oh, there's, this is a lot like this. And then you start to see the relationship and then now you're interested in it. And that's kind of the whole mode of this podcast. For sure. It, yeah, that's really interesting in that I started to think about all of the different, one thing I, I wish I was better at was just being able to sit down and, and read. And, and that's definitely a, kind of coming to a point where I, I need to make that an emphasis. But listening to, we, we have such diverse interests, listening to so many different types of podcasts, whether you're listening to the Jocko podcast or a health and fitness or a powerlifting podcast, or then I start to listen to, you know, comedians yep. and, and some of their podcasts, or I think both of us have an interest in, in the UFC. So you yep. can listen to fighters podcasts. I, I'd love watching some of those short videos on George St. Pierre and just his philosophies and how, how he's evolved as a man, as a fighter and, and, just through his life, just watching his pursuits. He's somebody that's always resonated with me to have those interests, but then also see what other people are doing. And that's really neat. I and I, I think everyone's battles with this, but there's things that you're just like, why would anyone be interested in that? And I think I try to help practice a healthy engagement of interest. And I, I again, I'm not perfect at this. There's things that I think that matter and other things that I don't think that matter. But at the end of the day, someone thinks it matters because it exists. Right. And people are interesting. And one of the things is just I try to practice the level of patience to be interested and engaged. If you really focus on someone's life, it's a book in and of itself. Yes. You're reading into that person. And that just evolves into all sorts of other things. But that diverse range of content, it's, it's amazing now because, again, before you would go to school, you get into your path and you've surrounded your network with other individuals that are teachers, powerlifters, etc. But now you can listen to that UFC fighter. He's got this philosophy. I actually agree, and I can apply that kind of, that range of thought. And I just love that 
the it's almost like it's perpendicular but it's not in contrast of one another it's just that diversity of thought but also that mode of picking your passion and, and trying to apply in, in that vehicle of discipline that is, is how you deliver your philosophies through the world and sure. that's the coolest i think part of that i think i was gonna there's a bunch of other things i want to ask you about yeah yeah I, I think one of the things that was interesting about you said so there's this kind of ongoing camp of thought between kind of the prescriptive mode of training or programming and i say programming as in not just weightlifting i'm, I'm talking writing code or mm -hmm. delivering a product versus kind of a this it's called more of an agile approach and I, like most things, I'm somewhere in the middle. I think that it, it depends on the level of resolution that you go to from a micro to a macro standpoint. But in passing conversations, we've talked about how you select an end, an end goal, and then you work backwards with your existing knowledge, and then you essentially try to isolate the variables that go into said building that, yeah. and then try to identify the main variables, whether it be obviously sleep, timing, workload, etc. and then work towards that. Can you kind of tell me uh, how you got to that and then yeah. I'll, I'll explain the opposition into some aspects, but I, I do think that you are doing that on a macro scale. So I think, again, I think it just depends on the level of, if you, if you look at your 30-year career and mm -hmm. you look at it from that lens versus kind of in the cycle of one training or competition, it just yeah. it, it's different. Yeah, and it's interesting when you said that, it made me think about how I program for our student athletes differently, a little bit differently than I program for myself. Just because with their training, there's so many more variables. Instead of saying for them, hey, this week it's gonna be five, five by five at 70%. Because of so many variables with them, hey, maybe it's five by five and you're gonna work up to your best set of five with one or two reps left in the tank. We don't wanna go right. to failure. Where in my training, I'm in much more control of the variables. So let's say that I've got, I want to do a competition. Right now I'm four weeks out from, I believe four weeks out from the national championship. So you better know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about the day. But anyway, let's say that, it's funny. Let's say that if I pick a competition that's 14 weeks out. So basically how this process works for me is that I'm going to say, what's, what do I want to squat that day? What do I want to bench that day? What do I want to deadlift that day? So then let's say that if I want to squat 589, then basically if that's 100%, that's what I'm going to squat that day, my second attempt is going to be about 94%. My opening attempt is going to be about 88% of that, that 100. So I do that with my squat, my bench, and my deadlift. And then basically I reverse engineer or, or just reverse that process work backwards towards that those 14 weeks what are those 14 weeks look like and basically i'm going to set my program up in four or five week waves where and again this is very generally speaking um let's say week one is on a squat i'm going to do five sets of eight at at 60 percent of not what i'm going to when i say that 60 percent, that's not 60 percent of 589 I'm going to say at that point, maybe my best squat is only going to be about 550. So right. I'm, going to, I'm going to do that 60% of, of 550. The next week, maybe at 70%. This is super general li linear periodization. This is very basic yep. stuff. 
one week is 60, one week is the next week is 70, the third week is 80, the fourth week is 90. Then I drop back down, and then maybe now that that first week of the wave is going to be at 65 percent. Second week is now at 75 percent. So that's how it started, and it's obviously it's evolved quite a bit since then. And as I've got older. Man, I can't hammer out five sets of whatever at 90%. So now it's evolved to where I scale things back because I'm older now. I'm going to put <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to actually put a, my warm-ups are where I build in that volume. So we're now maybe I'm only hitting three sets at some of those top higher weights. I'm trying everything I can to reduce the risk of something going sideways. Because like marathon training, if you pick up an injury, it's going to impact your training for the entire rest of the cycle. So again, I'm going to have those end goals. I'm going to work my way back. And then basically that's when I start filling in like all of the weights that I want to hit. I'm going to fill in my accessories. So now my accessories. So again, the Let's say on a squat day, the squat's the primary mover. So then you, you go through your stiff-legged deadlifts or good mornings or what other accessory lifts that, that you want to build into your program. Those kind of match the intensities of the wave. Again, for squats, so just say my in, the, in week 14, and I don't count week 1, 2, 3, 4, towards the meet, I go 14, 13, 12, you know, right. 11, 10. So I kind of work back that, that way. But my accessories are going to match the intensity of where I'm at. If I'm squatting heavy for fewer reps, my accessories are going to be a little bit heavier. And just like I do with the with our students, accessories for me are designed around injury prevention. It, it just bullet, bulletproofing myself, to put myself in a position where I'm not going to get hurt. Squatting is just such a just such controlled movements, and you're not the squat is not a unilateral movement. You're I noticed training with some powerlifters back in the day. They're after we get done squatting, they're doing barbell step ups, and both of them have 315 pounds on the bar, where I'm over here doing step ups with 185, and I am struggling. So I know that my unilateral strength are just things working, like legs working independently of each other. That's a weakness for me. So. Yeah. Knowing that, I don't want that to be something that, I don't want the kids to develop that either. So we do, again, we're doing a lot of unilateral movements that are the, the pure purpose is just injury prevention. And then just having them strong through just different ranges and planes of, of movement. But so in a nutshell, that's how I set up my programming. Again, I start with the end in mind and work it back. And so whether it's 14 weeks, 16 weeks, or six weeks, I'm able to follow that plan and adjust. I'll go with the agile thing and then I'm going to talk a little bit about what I think is really cool about centering a deadline around whatever objective you have, which I think it creates a weight and pressure that's applied to, hey, I have to get to this point. There's a peak in which I have to perform. I think it happens across anything. If you're wrestling, you're going for that national championship, you want to peak at that moment. So there's this weight of time that is applied to whatever you're training for. So the agile, more habit-forming approach is that what ends up, what is more important is that dynamic aspect of doing the thing that you're doing and adjusting the variables as it goes. So there's no, it's almost more absurd is in the fact that it's floating without a weight of goal so there's no for example when i lift i'm not there's nothing that i'm exactly training for other than to make myself feel good yeah and through that i have a more dynamic approach to 
the things that I'm trying to accomplish. I'll break it into maybe six span weeks or some programming that's just for the fun of trying new things out. Sure. Um, and it's much more agile, but when you're competing, it's very hard because again, you have a peak to perform. You have a peak performance that you have to perform at. And what I was gonna say is that over the course of time, if you diffuse out to a bigger picture level, if you look at and you make the deadlines in which you've done that, held yourself accountable to as arbitrary into the fact that you have just held yourself accountable through iterations of doing cycles and have adjusted based off of that, it's much more of a dynamic approach if you think of, about it from that lens. So in programming, in for example, computer programming, the agile methodology is you give the product to the client and then they request the features as they have the product itself. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah. Hey, here's your software. We want a button here, so then we'll make that button and then the software lives continuously. There's no like, here's the software and then we're gonna go make 2022 and here's the new software and then here's 2023, here's the new software. Where traditionally, it's more of a linear progression where you have an end date, you have to get all of these software features into this package by the end of 2022 and you have to deliver that said product to those people. Because because the the constraints of deadlines are, are non-existent, and, and there might be a reach here with between weightlifting and competition, but I just think it's interesting uh, to, to the center of deadline because what's ending up happening with the, the delivery methods in the real world is that deadlines are let, are more arbitrary and the features matter more. So the dynamic ability to, like you said, when you go into that, you go into the uh, weight room with the students, you have to, there's more of a creative mode of, of thinking there. It's not as prescriptive. You're adapting your product to the needs of the person, which I think is not common, especially with old school head coaches. Or yeah. They're more like, you didn't do this. You shouldn't be doing any other sports. You're in my sport. I'm trying to control every single variable of your life. But the reality is you don't get you don't get to determine that. Like you have all these idiosyncratic things. What are the features that you can provide to make that person the best based off of what you know? Yeah. And so I think when you can when it's you and you can control all the variables, I think that's exactly what you have to do is you need that that kind of that linear progression. You have you calculate all the variables out, but when you're delivering a service or thing to someone else, you have to account for that other person. So when you were talking about that, I was like, you are actually doing that within your coaching, which is yeah. really cool. I, it, to me, it, it, I couldn't imagine if a kid, if the regular crew, let's say that now they're on that fourth week where they're going to hit some big doubles or triples. And then now we've got a kid coming in from baseball practice that hasn't lifted in the last two weeks. Why on earth? I would not, I could not in good conscience say, yeah do exactly what they're doing my goodness i, I, get, I, I guess you know. i even think though even the coaches that you get coaches that are in, in my oh. mind specialty coaches and they don't yeah. want their ba baseball player to be playing basketball they don't want their basketball player to be playing baseball and i think yeah. that from a diversity of functional movements and strength yeah. and, and just the development of the individual that is a yeah. selfish projection onto the student i don't know if you're what your experience is of that yeah, especially right now we're in, in, in such a, there's such a push 
for specialization. Kids are wanting to quit one sport to focus on another. I have my personal beliefs about that, but let's just say, for example, if a kid decides that they don't want to play football because they want to specialize in, in basketball, you know. Right. I have my personal opinions. I think it's absolutely absurd, and it's going to be something that they're going to regret at some point in their life. And I feel playing football is going to help them become a much better basketball player. But that's, that's actually scientifically true, too. Like yeah. that, that is, and that's, again, it goes back to that shedding the focus onto one thing way too early beyond your yeah. even knowing. Yeah. But when that kid comes into the weight room, I'm not there. Again, going back to what I want that weight room to be. I want that place to be, I want the weight room to be a place that they want to come and, and they want to be there and they want to get better. So I'd be a hypocrite if, you know, I say I'm not going to work with that kid or if I give that oh, kid absolutely. attitude because I don't want to, they don't want to play football, I don't want to deal with them. I'd be doing that kid a disservice and I'd be a hypocrite basically saying that my love and my passion is making sure that, that these kids learn and develop it and develop that love for the weight room. I've, I switched gears a little bit mentally in that this is a student, this is a young person that, that I've known for a long time, that I have a relationship with, and that I'm going to treat them just like I would the the other kids that I'm going to work with in football. That's definitely a challenge. And for me, not being a head coach, so it's a little different angle here. I'm not head coach of a sport, so I don't have that, you know, I want all of our programs to succeed. I want every sports program Absolutely. To, to, to be great at, at Bismarck High. Again, I'm not the head coach of any particular sport. I have that interest. Like, I want everybody to be good. I, yeah, I want, you're, you're trying to feed all, you're trying to make all boats rise. You're the tide 100%. that boat makes all boats rise. Yeah. I think from my personal experience and from my, what I've read, and this might be my biased criticism, but what ends up happening, and I think more coaches are becoming more open to this, but you get this prescriptive notion that, hey, this is the recipe for success. If you do everything that I'm telling you, if I control all the variables in which what you're doing, said head coach is saying this, and I guess I'm, I'm not talking about a specific coach. I'm talking this very sure. generally. As a yeah. figurative person that is head of a department or whatever it may be, hey, if you focus in and do this X, Y, and Z, and you don't have any cross-pollination of range of functional training, et cetera, then you will be successful. And the statistics, the science, none of that's proven. Oftentimes people who early specialize, if it's not golf, because golf is repetitive motion, if it's in that wicked environment that has all of these variability in, in the actual sport, oftentimes the late specializers that had a range of experiences in sports and developed to be an athlete versus kind of whatever prescriptive notion that is, it oftentimes favors the person that has that range of abilities. And yeah. I just, I think at the end of the day, you have to encourage the decisions and like optionality for the student and, and kind of provide, again, what you know to provide to, to do that. And I think as a person who's probably more of a, obviously lifting can be a center sport itself. It can be the pinnacle or the, the priority in and of itself, but a lot of times people are waiting as a service to their actual sport. And at the end of the day, you, just, you obviously want just what's best for the student in the, in the competition that they're going to be participating in. Yeah. And I, I, th I think when you, you have so much specialization or dealing with, I think just because I'm older, I, I think of like the old school athlete that 
is going to play football, that's going to wrestle and then go out for track, or the guy that's going to play football, that's going to play basketball, and then go out for track or play baseball. Working with those athletes, like when do they have time to train? That's such a difficult, right. they're going to lose maybe that two-sport athlete that competes in the fall and in the spring. They've got the winter to develop and build a base. So now it's you get that push to train in season, which I think is super important. That, like that's inter, interleaving the training into the actual sport itself. Yeah. I think, again, if football players are training during the football season, if they're able to, and I have the school of thought that you can improve and you can get stronger during a football season, and not everybody shares that same philosophy, and that's fine. I feel like you can get stronger during basketball season or you can get stronger. Wrestling is challenging from that standpoint that there's that the weight issue or just oh, the, yeah, yeah. You know, the cutting weight makes that. That's a different animal, but... I still feel like there's a place for training in wrestling. And then, of course, through track and baseball. If you're not training during the course of the season, you're doing a disservice to your kids and in the programs. There's an injury prevention element to it, too, that if you're training throughout your seasons, your injuries are going to go down. You're not going to have the same type of injuries or the same frequency of injuries in your sport if your athletes are training. I think that's proven to be true as well yeah. I, I think that so from a macro standpoint you have this efficiency issue with trying to build the program and the seasons around the abilities for them to train and I always like the idea the notion of seasons because you, you it's just human nature to have seasons right so you have a mode of applying a different type of person you are to the environment that you're performing in or whatever it may be. But there's this, and this goes back to the agility, the agile thing is where you interleave and you build a more complex layering of that training, for example, in the sport. The problem is the season is a lot more prescriptive and easy to perform. So it's okay from this season to this season, this is what you're gonna do. But when you're having to train during season, it's a lot more dynamic. There's so many more variables and yeah. again, that's why people probably shy away from it because they're like, well, there's too much risk with the variability that could, but at the end of the day, if you're doing injury prevention, you can keep it pretty simple. Yeah. And so that's why I wanted to talk about this because yeah. the old school way is more of a prescriptive notion mm -hmm. and it's less of an open dynamic response to the athlete itself or development of the athlete as a, a dynamic individual. And that's what I think is really interesting. So. You, you are in that case. So you're basically yeah. in somewhere in the middle as well because you control the variables and the variability that you can with the the goal in mind. But then from a macro standpoint, it's a very dynamic world. And so it feels like I'm doing different things. Like for myself, I'm doing one thing. And with the kids, I'm doing something completely different just because of all of those variables. And when you're dealing with young people, man, there's no shortage in variables as far as their training and their social lives and how much sleep they get and nutrition and all of those things where with me, I'm in control of all of that. Yeah. Which, I'm which have... you, I was going to say too, you, in your sport, sport one, your sport is a specialized sport in some aspects. Very much so. The, var the variables are very uh, static in some aspects. There's not a person wrestling you that's throwing random things at you. So through your progression and iteration, you are specializing through that medium. 
and I, I always try to make it so like I'm not trying to to like discredit that at all. I think that oh, yeah. is exactly what you're supposed to do. Yeah. But yeah. when it comes to a dynamic environment, it's not possible to prescribe all of the variables. So you have to look at it from more of a big picture standpoint. Sorry, I cut you off there. No, you're good. No, that's spot on. Again, I can't do with, unless it, um, there are certain kids that, again, that maybe don't, that, that, that are only playing one sport or that, that take it so seriously that they control those other variables, that they're not going to be on their phone until two o'clock in the morning. They're not, again, they're going to control as many variables as they can. Like they make it a point to pack food, you know, in their backpack so that they're getting meals every two and a half hours or whatever it is, as opposed to eating lunch and then going to practice and then trying to train. And you, you haven't had anything to eat since lunchtime. Right. You know, those are variables and things that we run into. But, you know, it, exactly just what you talked about. I just, I feel like so much, it has to be that agile approach where again, you, you've got to be flexible and, and you've got to be able to modify and evolve again just going back to absorb modify and apply you've got to be able to see what other people are doing see if it fits modify it apply it but again you've got to be open to changing those variables if if. because you're going at the end of the day is to cement the the fire for them to get to a point that they can be self-sufficient, independent, and start to control the variables that they want to for this desired outcome. At the end of the day, if I would have never learned how to lift and I was educated to lift, I probably wouldn't lift continuously mm-hmm. now. So again, yeah, I'm not, I don't have a sport that I'm competing in, but the effect that just learning or just having a passion for it or the philosophies around it, et cetera. Obviously my friend, John, he's always in my ear about all sorts of yeah, uh, innovative and uh, things that are happening in, in the strength and conditioning world. Him being kinesiology major and stuff like that. But again, interest. I, yeah. Why? Why would someone be interested in just lifting weights, or why would someone go sit in a sauna that's like super, super hot? Like that sounds so right. miserable and uncomfortable. It's don't you know, have yeah. some openness. I, I, there, there's a saying: if you're too open, your brain will fall out. You can get lost into misrepresentations or poor. You need some structure, but yeah. Yeah, I think as a coach, I think that my favorite coaches have been the ones that can adapt to the actual athlete or student versus kind of prescribe, hey, this is how you do it. Yeah. This is the necessity. Yeah. It's it's back and forth, though. I get it. Yeah. And there's, yeah, there's definitely some balance there because, again, most successful programs, they have that base fundamental that is prescriptive right. in, in terms of what they do in order to be successful that doesn't change but like you said that just the evolution you've got to evolve you know that 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 blueprint or that fundamental base can stay the same but what you do off of that it just it has to evolve and it has to change and it has to be flexible and you have to be able to modify it on the fly i think a lot of times i think people have too short of a window of time in which they think their philosophy or their basically principle is timeless and you see this and there's obviously all sorts of reasons like for the nfl for example the run game the run heavy like smash mouth football was like the bedrock of the football philosophy mm-hmm. and now you see with introduction of new rules and protections of the athletes and the quarterback but now it's like spread the field out as, as much as possible to get every inch out and yeah. you see this like innovative philosophy and idea that's contesting with kind of that old school mentality and 
I love it because I have such a respect for tradition and that old school yeah. grit. But then yeah. I just I also respect and admire the innovative mind and that innovation never stops. So you're always contesting these old principles that you think are timeless. You think that your playbook is literally the best thing for 50 years. What's tried and true doesn't always work, but also what's innovative is has a probability of being wrong more than it is. Yeah. I love yeah. I love that contention between the two. I, I think that that's the mode of what we've been talking about or the theme in, in some of the aspects of what we've been talking about for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you say that, I always think about football in North Dakota. Yeah, it sure is pretty when you're able to throw the ball around. And and I have a deep appreciation for that as well. Most of the teams that are playing in the Fargo Dome are teams that run the football. Right. And teams that get after it. And we see it at the high school level. We see it at the NFL level that if you don't run the football and if you don't play, if you're not physical in the trenches, you're not going to hang a banner. You're not going to wear a ring. It's just not going to happen. So... It's that's a it's a fun thing to think about. I've been thinking about because I'm some I'm a Vikings fan here. And their new coach is very innovative and five wide, four wide, likes to pass the ball seventy percent of the time. And we just came from Mike Zimmer, who is like run. Yeah. And so you see that dichotomy between the two. Again, I think it's in the middle. Like I don't. I think that there's playmakers, and you adapt to fulfilling those needs of those playmakers, and you win through the trenches, and those, that's kind of proven and true, and. I don't know. I love just thinking between the different camps of thought, but oftentimes you get like this dogmatic, oh, this is the, this is, has to be the way. This is the yeah. tried and true, or this yeah. is, you guys are old school, whatever. But it happens even in business. Like I, yeah. so like my position, I'm uh, technology and innovation. So I am that guy that's like constantly trying to basically disrupt the traditional thing, the kind of the why break or why fix it if it's not broke philosophy yeah. i'm always contending with that so I, I have a respect for it and what's that thing they say that like the worst possible thing you could hear in sport or business is we've always done it this way you know that i heard that a while back and that's just always resonated with me that we've always done it this way and, and then there's that that dichotomy or balance that just you've been successful because you've always done it this way you don't want to have that like that be so much in that camp that you're not open to evolving and changing yeah, and, and just my favorite I would say my I read a quote recently but it's just you know timeless principles and philosophies with timely practice or timely practices and just if you can balance those two then oftentimes mm-hmm. you're filling the needs of the now while staying true to the to kind of the bedrock of what you're trying to accomplish I think yeah you see a lot of good programs do that like through time not just there's not just a window of time where the stars aligned it's like how did you build a program that's continuously getting better while having this bedrock philosophy etc so i have a couple wrap-up questions and they're all separate from one another but yeah first one is is what does it mean to be a champion i like that a lot we all have our just initial thoughts of we think about winners we think about teams that have won championships but i'd mentioned george st pierre earlier in in the podcast and i think about his journey he fights matt hughes gets that title fight fights matt hughes loses gets the i can't remember if it was an immediate rematch or not but or he's got to fight a couple people comes back and beats matt hughes becomes a ufc champion goes on a run beats bj Penn, beats these guys loses to matt sarah 
and then has to come back and eventually beat Matt Serra. And then again, goes on a historic run, is enjoying success, then blows out his knee and is, is out of the game for four years or whatever it was. And then comes back and beats Bisbane. So to me, instead of putting a, a definition on what it means to be a champion, I think that journey explains like my thoughts on what it is to be a champion. It, it's not just winning it once, it's you have that experience, but then you get knocked off. And another person who I think is a great example, somebody that we both know and love very much, is Brant. When I think about him, but maybe a surprise run as a sophomore, wins a state championship. Unfortunately, blows out his tricep, not once but twice, has two surgeries, costs him his football season. He, he comes back to wrestle, maybe he's got like a, just a very shortened season. Yep. Still manages to claw his way back and take third in the state. Very impressive to be able to do that but then comes back as a senior and is just a destroyer of worlds is the way that I thought about his senior year. Just with some of that, some of the techniques that he was using and just comes back, runs through everybody and wins a state championship, repeats just after all of that adversity. So to me, what it means to me to be a champion is not just winning it, it's the adversity and the journey that comes along with it. Being on the top, and then getting knocked down, having to start back at the bottom again in that journey that it takes to get back. Being with Brant through so much of his recovery, through his training, through his frustrations, just seeing that, to me, that journey is what really makes a champion. It's the struggle, the sacrifice, all the adversity. There's gonna be a lot of lonely nights or times when you're by yourself with your thoughts and overcoming all of that, staying, keeping your eyes on the prize, staying true to what, what you want to accomplish, fighting through the doubts, fighting through the ups and downs, the, the thoughts of, I can't do this, I'm never going to get back to the top. It's such a, it's such a uh, life-changing pursuit, I think. So without giving a, a, a real definition, I think it's pretty clear what I view as a champion. I like that a lot. I, I absolutely concur with that. I think he has inspired me. And for all those you don't know, it's my little brother. But yeah, he's definitely inspired me. That form of resiliency and champion is not about the title of becoming a champion. It's it's almost like the champion doesn't exist. The task does. It's almost like it wasn't about the glory of doing it. It was like to just get there. I think about that often too, but I think it was defined there. And that's why I love asking these questions because it's like these aha moments, but that the idea that you're, if you did it for just you, you'd quit after you did it once, Mm -hmm. you know? But to have that desire, it's just, it's a mode. It's not a, it's not a title. Like just, yeah, yeah, you are a champion. It's no, you live it. So I think that's a really cool, both instances are, are great examples of that yeah that was awesome yeah i just that's that to me is is what it's all about or on the flip side that somebody that has been just chipping away just year after year i may never win a powerlifting world championship but to get there and maybe make the podium so that's the only goal i have left in the sport i've achieved everything that i wanted to achieve but competing at a world championship and 
podium, making the podium at a world championship, whether it's third place, second place, I don't, it, it's just that journey. And for me, it's been uh, kind of 15 years in counting. So if I can make it and make the podium, whether or not I'm the world champion, I can, I could feel like I'm a champion in that pursuit. It, it, a champion could be anybody that again has been on just a long, arduous journey where they poured themselves into a, a pursuit and whether or not they make it to the top, which again, we all know there's only going to be one person that's going to be a champion. There's still a lot of people that have battled and, and fought. So that to me that, is another example. So this, the, the definition reminds me of a poem. I think I'm going to read it real quick. Yeah. Because I think it, it, it exemplifies essentially that same notion. But so it's, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance to their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies. Or being hated, don't give away to hating. And yet, don't look too good, nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make your dreams your master, if you can think and not make your thoughts your aim, if you can meet triumph and disaster, and treat those two imposters just the same. If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things that gave your life to broken, and stoop up and build them up with worn out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on a turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word of your loss. If you could force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings nor lose your common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you but none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of a distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. I don't know. I, I, th so that poem reminds me of the idea. If you're working on something and it completely goes to the wayside and you don't ever breathe a second about it to anyone, just that humility, the resiliency, the patience that goes with, let's say you, you built a huge house and it falls down and you just pick your tool back up and start building it again. That, that's that kind of same mode of, I don't know, it's a very common, it's a popular poem, but yeah. I really like that. And I, I feel what a blessing it is to be involved in what you feel is a worthy pursuit. Absolutely. That, that to me, that's one of the, the great gifts in life, right? Yeah, it's almost as though the pursuit itself is, you should be happy that it starts all over again. Yeah. That's the end. That's it right there. So I have two other ones. I have, if you were to write a book, what would it be about? I think it would probably be a lot like, I think it would be a lot like a kind of a how-to, maybe a, a how-to for young people. Well, that's my next of, question. My next yeah. question is your advice to young people. So yeah, say, you can blend these two questions together yeah. maybe. I, I just think maybe it's just while I teach. So I teach career education to eighth graders and we great content to be able to talk to them about, about careers, to get them thinking about 
the what's available to them. As we know, a lot of our students can be wildly successful without having to go to college. And right. just trying to get them to understand the the options that are available to them and, and to believe that maybe wherever their situation is right now is not what they have to be when they get older. While teaching this class, I get to talk to them about life and talk to them about accountability and enduring and basically I'm pretty old school from that standpoint of just what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it and I think so I had to write a couple thoughts down as far as advice to young people I think the number one thing I would say is show up that's the biggest battle oftentimes I think back in into my life the when I got involved in coaching indoor football I had a, a friend really push me to get to, to go to go talk to the coach at the time. I didn't think I was good enough. I didn't think that I, I thought I'd get laughed out of the building or, or, or whatever. I just didn't think that I would I had enough experience to be considered. And I showed up and one thing led to another and however many years after that conversation, I think maybe fifteen years after that or sixteen years after that, I get inducted into the IFL Hall of Fame. So show up, try out, show up and put yourself out there. The next thing I think would be to be coachable. That's a really tough one, is to be coachable, be open, because most of the people that are working with you that are people that have been there before. I think when we're young and we think we know it all, right, that's the, the curse of youth, is that, that we know it all and, and we don't want to listen to anybody. So I would say be coachable because you're surrounded by people that have been there and done that. And most of the things they're saying are coming from a place of, of, of being helpful, where they don't want you to suffer the same pitfalls that they did or experience the same hardship that, that they did. I love, there's another one, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. We That's talk about one. that a, a, a lot. Your friend group is gonna be a big influence on what you get involved with. And I'm living proof of that. When I was younger, again, the people I were hanging around with just were not doing good things. I think about one of my, one of my dearest friends when I was younger was a young man who, you know, as a, a freshman in high school, after football season, he's getting letters from USC, UCLA already. And I lost touch, but the last thing I heard, like, he didn't even graduate. He was locked up. So I was fortunate from that standpoint, like, the, that could have been, that could have been me. Like, I could have followed that same path. For me, one of the biggest changes in my life was moving to Alaska, where I started hanging out with good people that whether they or not they had their struggles, they were doing great things. Some of my closest friends, again, give him a shout out, Derek Gurley was, he's the captain of the, the football team, captain of the basketball team, 4.0 GPA, but again, just great person. And that was so impactful to me, being around, having those people in my circle. Again, just help me get my crap together and start doing some of those good things. And then I think finally is and this is whether it's for young people or adults, is you're never going to be ready. Take the opportunity anyway. I think both of us can think about many times in our life where an opportunity presented itself and we thought we were ready, but we had no idea. Thinking back to my first head coaching job in indoor football, if I had that same opportunity presented to myself right now, there's no way I would take it. <laughs> there was no way I would take it, but the I was not ready for that position. And, and I say I wouldn't take it just because of some of the other things that were involved with it. Yeah. I was not ready for that opportunity, but I took that opportunity, and it ended up being a really 
uh, powerful thing for me in that it led to other great opportunities. And because of those great opportunities, I got to meet and share time with so many incredible human beings. That also was one of those moments in my life where it really altered the course of where I was at that time. But just when I left coaching indoor football and I took the job that I have now, I was not ready. I was not ready at all. I didn't know how to use power school. I didn't know how to use the grade book. I didn't know any of those things. Definitely was not ready, but just whatever opportunities that you have, again, you're not going to be ready, but take the opportunity because you're going to, just through that experience of learning, you're, it's going to help. I like so. that a lot. I think one of those things you do is you just you immerse yourself in the opportunity and you'll know real quick whether you're ready or not. But oftentimes yeah. you're, what are you ready for? I mean, at the end of the day, there's most times you're ready for what you already do. One of one of my favorites is practice what you want to become. And, and that kind of is like probably the predecessor to, if you're not ready for the opportunities to, you better, yeah. you, you're going to be practicing it soon. So that's, I love that. That's great. I, I love those questions at the end. So one of my favorite podcasters, Lex Friedman, he does yeah. the same kind of thing. He yeah. asks basically advice to young people. And it's just amazing to hear. Everyone has such a, a perspective on life. So it's, I don't know. Yeah. It's a little bit more, it's a little romantic to think about, but it's just, I, I enjoy hearing those lessons that you just, those were, those aren't just, words those are experiences packed in in that little two minute span of what you just conducted and yeah you you think about like when i went out for football in high school i was not ready for any aspect of any part of that experience but again that was another very life-changing i didn't go out for football until i was a sophomore in high school just how much that shaped my life through football and wrestling like so many people experience you have you learn through those sports just what you're cap- what you're truly actually capable of. You See know, your you, potential, the upside yeah. of your potential. You start to think about, you start to realize your potential is massive. What you're capable of doing is so far beyond what you thought it was. And, and that's what I learned from sports. It's awesome. it's just that discipline being being coached, but again, just understanding that I'm capable of so much more than I thought I was at that time in my life. And so for young people, again, show up, whether you think you're ready or not, jump in. Love to see young people get involved in sports. Again, it doesn't matter what sport it is, but I just feel like we, so much of our lives, I, I feel has been shaped by our sports and our experiences and think about your relationships now how many of those relationships started in in sport absolutely yeah no i think it's a proxy to to how to live life you need some sort of vehicle to to instrument these ideas that we're talking about and when you're 18 there's really a limited amount of things that you can do into the world but you can you can do outstanding things and i think that what you're talking about is that time frame in which you start to realize what you can really start to see is in what my efforts contribute to this said output and i think that's very important probably one of the most important things for a young adult to see is some of that again all those things that you're preaching but i think we're two hours it's pretty wild i didn't know if i was capable of talking for that long 
this is as we joked before just in in my life probably almost the last decade I'm so used to just getting to the point, keeping my conversation short because I'm working with people with such short attention spans, or I shouldn't say people, my students. I don't want to make that sound like it's my... In case (coughs) your colleagues are listening in right now. Yeah, yeah, not my coworkers, (laughs) but just being with young people, again, their attention spans and and just what they're able to to take in through a a day or even in, you know, conversations with staff, our our time and focus is just so limited that it's just really, I I appreciate the opportunity, Peyton, just to be able to sit down and and talk and and just have a conversation. It's something I I feel like I don't get to do very often. So this is really cool. I appreciate it. I, I often think it's one of the most refreshing. It's this, it's that perfect mode of diffuse and focused state. We're just talking and I, I love the conversation and I appreciate you coming on I'm trying to ramp up more of these at least once a month but again I appreciate you coming and on I hope and you do you've had some great guests on some it's been fascinating to to go back through over the old episodes and just the diversity of people that you've had on and whether I necessarily share interests necessarily with some of those people just but still there's so many things that I, I take from those episodes and, and just being able to listen to people talk where we're actually a lot more alike than, than what you would think on the surface. Absolutely. That's the goal. That's exactly the goal. Thank you so much for 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 the goal.